Hi, and welcome to a podcast from Hope Springs Church Coventry. For more, please find us on Facebook at Hope Springs Church or on Twitter, we're at Hope Springs Cobb. Thank you and enjoy. Uh, so let's make a start then. Uh, I'll just open in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for your um, great love that um, we only love because you first loved us. So I pray that in everything we, we do, in everything that we see, in everything that we hear, um, in everything that we experience, that we would be experiencing your great love for us, that we would be um, fully aware, fully dialed in, fully conscious um, of how you love us, of, of when you love us, um, and, and that that would transform us, that that would uh, conform us uh, to the image of Christ. So, Father, um, for everything that I'm going to say, um, Father, I pray that by your Spirit you just reveal more of your love that you demonstrated in Jesus Christ by your Holy Spirit uh, in us and through us and to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Um, so I was explaining to whoever was sat in here about five minutes ago that uh, we decided who was preaching this morning on Thursday morning uh, and then I was at hospital with uh, Sarah until about 2am that night so this may or may not be coherent um, but thank God for the Holy Spirit who will just reveal Jesus to us and you guys are free to kind of let your minds roam uh, if I'm making no sense whatsoever. Um, so we're going to carry on with, with the topic of seeing Jesus, which uh, Steve set up for us last week. So um, Steve st- talked about how what we see influences how, how we be, um, essentially. So he was talking about the boys watching Ninjago and deciding that they were going to try ninja moves on each other. And um, he moved on to talk about um, uh, Peter looking at Jesus and not letting the situation define him. So the power was always there, and it's just dependent upon what Peter was perceiving. Um, So we're going to continue that, and we're going to talk about um, some really fun things. So we're going to talk about uh, perception blindness, uh, and and actually I'm hoping to uh, clear the decks a little bit about when we actually say seeing Jesus, what do we actually mean? Um, So first of all, I've got a little game which a few of you have tried. I think I'm going to time it so it doesn't last all day. But we have um, Skittles, multicoloured sweets. Uh, We have chopsticks. We have coloured bowls. And can we have two volunteers, neither of which can be Jeremy, uh, because Jeremy's too good at it. Um, And the idea is, is to get as many of your colour into the coloured bars in the time available. So I'm going to give you guys a minute, I think. So, two volunteers, please. Go on, Jeremy. You can do it. Anybody else? Go on, sorry. I'll give it a go. Go on, then. That's cool. I'll, I'll, I'll time you a minute. Now, is this, is this yellow or blue? Uh, that's definitely yellow, because there is a yellow. green bowl that's different. Okay. okay, so on your marks... Get set, go. You got a minute. It is so hard. Oh, Jeremy, Jeremy's got a good idea. Come on, we're 20 seconds in. This is just terrible. Well done. Dear Jesus, I pray for their self-esteem. 
that it won't be damaged too much by this appalling effort. If it's about how many yellow ones I can get out of the bowl, I'm doing all right. Oh, good skills. This is interesting. Necessity, necessity is the mother of invention, apparently. Uh, for, for the, for the um, listeners, basically we have a bowl of Skittles and they're trying to use chopsticks to get as many Skittles into a bowl as possible. And instead of trying to pick them up now, they're kind of flicking them. And Luke is absolutely busting it. Okay, time's up. Time's up. <laughs> right, so let's count them up then. Who, who's got... Do these ones that are close? No, no, close doesn't count. Right, so count them up. Eleven. Okay, so how many green skittles are there? Uh, what in either of our bowls? No, how many green skittles are there? Oh. You can't count them. No. Um, the answer is that you don't know. Thirty-one. Because you were focused on something else. Okay, you can sit down now. So the thing is, is that modern guys, uh, you're allowed to eat your skittles and the ones that fell on the floor, if you like. The thing is, is that. You only saw what you were focused on. Yeah. You did not perceive how many other things were going on. And you were so fixated. And because like, I gave you certain criteria, like that, that enabled your fixation even more on the task at hand to the point where you were blind to everything else that was particularly going on. And so I want to kind of just unpack this idea of, of how we see. It, it is, is almost like a mutually exclusive thing. Uh, so when we focus on one thing, we're not focusing on other things. Uh, so before I get too far into that, when I say seeing Jesus, what, what are we actually saying by seeing Jesus? So when we use the word seeing or to see, what, what are we actually saying? Experience. Experience. So, so we're already, we've moved beyond the, the, the sense of seeing, looking at something. And we've moved on to a, a broader idea. So seeing becomes a cipher or a metaphor uh, for something greater. So, come on, what else can we mean by seeing? So, we've got experience, so we mean experience in Jesus. Knowing. Knowing. Uh, so, we've got some sort of cognitive recognition. So, it's not just what I see, but there's, there's a level of that uh, um, kind of permeating me. Anything else? I can't think of a word for it, but like maybe perceiving. Yeah, yeah, and that's a great word. That's a really great word for it. Yeah. Being focused on. Yeah, focusing in on something. So, yeah, we use that kind of language. <coughs> familiar, yeah, familiarity to it. So um, it becomes normal to you, yeah. Okay, so that's got a time component to it as well, hasn't it? So that's over a period of time. So seeing isn't just a, I looked at something and then. It's, it's like I existed in that space for, for a period of time. Yeah, so, so, so we already see... And even I'm using that word in not just a, a looking at sense, but we already see that there's a, there's a range of meaning to when we talk about seeing Jesus. We're not just talking about looking at Jesus, you know, so we have an, uh, 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 in our imagination, we have an idea of what Jesus may have physically looked like. But that's not what we're talking about, really, when we're talking about seeing Jesus. We're not talking about looking at something. We're talking about experiencing something. We're talking about focusing in. So that means turning away from one thing. To look at something else, uh, there's a time component to it. So there's a, you know, John in the Gospel of John, he might talk about abiding in that. Um, and I want to suggest that um, 
seeing isn't just this action of looking at something and, al and allowing that to do something to us so like uh, we talked about perceiving um, but if we truly see something it changes us it, it affects us um, in kind of colloquial terms when we might talk about the penny dropping you know that, that moment of oh I see so that would have really helped me at university when I was doing control systems engineering and they talked about this thing called Laplace transforms I uh, did a whole, a whole module of it in my, in my third year at uni. Never got it. <laughs> just, just, given that I was doing a systems degree, ne never understood that thing. And the penny never dropped. Um, so I never saw it. It never changed the way I thought about things. It never uh, affected me in a way that I could respond in any way. It didn't conform me to anything. But when we actually perceive something, when we actually see, when we actually focus in on something, when we actually experience something, it changes us. Uh, so Steve alluded to, you know, like uh, the boys were watching Ninjago and they saw uh, the Spinjitsu or whatever it's called and, and it affected their fighting styles when they were being boisterous. Because <laughs> uh, they saw that, they perceived it, they, they, it, it, it permeated them and it conformed them in, in some way. Um, something is only really seen when it actually impacts our consciousness. So in a, in a debate, in an argument, um, which is completely unheard of these days, you know, when there could be two differing views about something going on, um, and then this is my view, and then, oh, I see, I understand your perspective. And by seeing somebody else's perspective, we could actually have some uh, patience for another person's ideas about something. Again, just, just riffing off the top of my head, nothing... Um, contemporary or meaningful at all um, but oftentimes we don't do that we don't see this other perspective so it doesn't change us it doesn't change our approach to things it doesn't change how we interact with other people but if we truly saw something it changes us so we have a perception so it actually filters into our brain so that we can understand it but then it changes us if we've really seen it but the other thing is and, and this is uh, kind of what the focusing thing is it's almost um, a challenge it's almost mutually exclusive so if I focus in on one thing I'm not looking at something else. And, and that, that isn't just for how we, how we physically see. You know, so if I'm looking at you guys now, I'm not looking at what's behind me. Uh, but it goes for how we understand. If we really allow one thing to shape our understanding uh, and how we, how we be, how we engage with reality, uh, it means that we're not being shaped by other things. Uh, so, for example, um, uh, vegetarianism or veganism. That has shaped your way of being um, to the point where you exclude other things. You can't, uh, well, you probably could do if you, you chose to, but because of, uh, I assume it's ethical reasons that you, you've chosen to, to pursue that diet, that shaped you in such a way that you cannot go back to a different way of seeing things. Uh, and that's what we're talking about when we talk about seeing Jesus. It's this whole range of meaning. So the first thing is to actually uh, focus in on something, but that focusing in is only uh, really established if it changes us, if it conforms us in certain ways. And we find that, um, you know, as we've been Christians for a while, certain traits or habits or, or, or actions or ways of being in the world become more and more ingrained in us, you would hope, if we're truly seeing Jesus. And the proof of the pudding is that if it changes you, isn't it? Like, are you seeing Jesus? It isn't just, yes, I am. It's, well, show me. There's a demonstration of that in our lives. So, you know, oftentimes in the Gospels, Jesus will talk about the fruit of something. 
And, and fruit isn't something that's worked up or, or um, put on. It's something that naturally happens yeah. when something's growing in a certain way, isn't it? Um, but also there's this, this, this challenge, this conflict, because there's this way of seeing or there's this way of seeing, and you can only choose one. You can only focus in on one. So there's this turning away from one thing to another. Uh, for example, a couple of weeks ago, uh, I was talking about perception, how we perceive things. Again, so it's fully in line with what we're talking about today. Um, so I don't know if you remember it, like I was talking about Judah, how he didn't see that he was his brother's keeper. And then eventually through uh, coming up against something, pushing against his way of understanding reality, he, he was able to change and recognise the faulty way he was viewing reality and establish a true way of viewing reality. And the example I used there was that I had a view of myself um, and I, uh, in, in my kind of health and fitness, that I could achieve a certain task of doing the MRF. Um, for those of you that weren't here, basically the MRF is a physical challenge whereby you carry 20 pounds in a rucksack uh, and then you run a mile. You do um, uh, 300 squats, 200 press-ups and 100 pull-ups with this weight and then you run a mile. Um, so I tried it. Uh, and uh, my view of reality came up against a different view of reality, which is my physical limitation, and uh, disabused me of my faulty view of reality. Uh, so if I say I failed, and then I learnt my own limitations, um, and that's 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 kind of how it works. There's a conflict of uh, there's a challenge to different ways of viewing things, and it's oftentimes we only change our way of viewing when we come up against a challenge to that. Um, so. The kind of technical name for this is, is di dialectics. It's when one idea butts up against another idea, and it's a bit like a dialogue, but it's kind of trying to establish the truth or falsehood of each way of viewing reality. Uh, so like theologians do this all the time, uh, but we don't need to worry about that. So if you want to turn with me, uh, we're at church, so we should probably use the Bible a bit. Uh, Steve would be proud of me that I've got a real one in front of me, but don't tell him. <laughs> Uh, so um, Hebrews 12, this, uh, Steve used this, this text last week as well. Um, so just the, the, first, the first couple of verses. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, uh, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. And so, within uh, th those couple of verses, there's actually quite a lot uh, going on. If you it, it, just just bring back to mind the ideas that we've already talked about about perceiving something or seeing something. Uh, so, first thing to note is it says uh, fixing our eyes upon Jesus, and, and the language there is this lit very literal: turn away from one thing and look upon Jesus. Turn away from everything else and look upon Jesus. And then the context tells you that everything that we're looking away from is things that hinder and the sin that easily entangles us. Look away from those things and look at Jesus. That's, that's what it's saying here. And then it goes on to describe how Jesus did this. Because he saw something. He, he saw the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross. Uh, so he turned away from the pain of the cross, the, the, um, everything that the cross stood for and all its shame, because he fixed himself on something. So he looked away from something to something. He saw the goal, the end, the end game of what he was accomplishing. Uh, so, so the exhortation is here for us, fix your eyes upon Jesus. There's loads of other things you could be looking at, but fix your eyes upon Jesus. 
And so there's this, there's this, this challenge, this conflict, this dialectic that's going on there. You know, you could look at other things, but I'm exhorting you, the writer of Hebrews is saying, I'm exhorting you, look at Jesus. There are other things that could occupy you, that you could be experiencing, that you could be focusing on, that you could be perceiving, but I'm exhorting you, fix your eyes upon Jesus. Okay, so I really want to get into this, this, this conflict, this challenge of, of ways of seeing. Um, so uh, I actually related this, this story to you the other night, but um, I was reading this article about uh, 9-11, obviously that, that, that the uh, commemoration of that has just happened. And they were saying, you know, like one of the things that came out of it was how could the CIA, how could the uh, intelligence agency of the United States miss this? It, it wasn't a... Um, it wasn't a small-scale attack on American soil. It was something quite significant that needed significant planning. And it was also flagged up. It was also announced that this was going to happen. So um, I don't know if you remember the, the, kind of, the, the way it all occurred, but Osama bin Laden uh, did a video um, from a cave somewhere saying that they were going to attack America. And... And it happened, you know, lo and behold, it happened. And so questions were asked, you know, why, why did America, with the largest military budget in the world that exceeds the next 10 countries all put together, with the, with the biggest intelligence network, with the most technology, the most advanced intelligence gathering network that they have, how did they not pick this up? How did they not see this happening? The pilots were trained on American soil. They flew American planes. How did the CIA not pick this up? And then they, they did a, a review of how, how that happens. And so one of the things that came up was this idea of perception blindness. So the CIA um, is a very, very exclusive agency. It's a very, very exclusive employer. Um, I think the stats are that one in every 20,000 uh, applicants actually get through. Because to, to be employed by them, you, you have to pass like a barrage of tests to, to assess your intelligence, your aptitude, your physical health, your, your, your psychological state. <clears throat> but the way kind of um, employment goes, and especially the way employment was going back in the 90s and early 2000s, um, there's this kind of, uh, there's a bias in employers whereby you, you tend to employ people that are like you. Yeah. Uh, so there's that already. So, so the CIA was largely dominated by um, white, well-educated uh, Protestant Americans from wealthy backgrounds because um, there's a whole kind of network of meaning behind this. So like, obviously, uh, to get into Ivy League schools in the States, because of the cost of education generally, only very, very wealthy people with inherited wealth end up get, being able to get in to these places. So to pass the uh, intelligence tests... You have to have a certain level of intelligence, but um, people can only demonstrate their intelligence if they're given the opportunities to do that, and generally that's associated with wealth. If you have enough money to get to these things, then you can demonstrate how intelligent you are. So the people that they were hiring were all the same. They're all white, American, Western, Westerners, uh, of Anglo-Saxon heritage, I suppose, they were all kind of from the, the wealthy upper middle class or, or upper class. They all thought in the same way. They all came from the same places. And so as a result, when they saw the video of Osama bin Laden, a man wearing a turban, army fatigues with a long robe over it, with a beard so he was unshaven, in a, in a cave, 
around a fire, even though he was saying these threats, and this is before kind of the whole kind of racial profiling came in, this is what started racial profiling. So they looked at this, this man and they just thought he was a backwards, uh, unintelligent uh, guerrilla fighter. So he may get himself an AK-47 and be able to shoot a few people, but there is no way that he could carry out a threat to the, na to the, 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 you know, the United States of America. There is no way that this guy's a credible threat. He's backwards, he's stupid. Um, he doesn't have technology, he doesn't have weapons, he doesn't have uh, wealth or power in any sort of way. This was the, these white American analysts looking at this video. But because they saw the world in that way, because to be successful in America, you have to be rich and powerful and have more and bigger, better, faster, more. You have to be good looking and clean shaven and wear the right suits. So they couldn't see any credible threat from this guy. But the thing was, was that Osama bin Laden was using a different way of seeing the world. So being sat in a cave was a reference to Muhammad when he started his revolution in the Middle East. Wearing a beard was like Muhammad. Being sat around a fire was symbolic within Islam. So the Americans looking at him saying he didn't have money, he didn't have power, he didn't have technology, so he's not a credible threat. But other people, frustrated in the world with, with uh, Islamic beliefs, uh, with radical Islamic beliefs, would look at this and say, he's evoking the Prophet Muhammad, which is an entirely different motivator. So one way of viewing the world says this guy's nobody, and one way of viewing this, this, uh, the world says that this guy is, is going to start a world revolution. But because you see the world in one way, it blinded people to the other way of seeing. And this is really important. Um, so when we talk about seeing Jesus, it's not just this way of viewing the world can be co-opted and, and mashed up with seeing the world in other ways. So uh, seeing the world in a capitalist way or a power-hungry way or something like that. The things don't go together. You either focus on one or the other. And actually, when you start reading the Gospels, you start to see this conflict of ways of seeing the world come up again and again and again. And Jesus is very firm and resolute that, no, that's not the way to see the world. This is the way to see reality, and it's exclusive. It's polemical. It, there is no crossover with that other way of seeing reality. Okay, so we're going to explore that a little bit. One thing uh, that... I see kind of more and more, and, and, and I love it, and, and, I, and I say it too, you know, like we talk about changing the world. I'm off to change the world, you know, it's a very kind of motivated thing. I'm going to change the world. And I want to say to you that that's not what Christianity is about. We are not about changing the world. Okay, does that, does that feel a bit weird to be saying that? We're not here to change the world. Absolutely not. I'm going to explain that, because that comes down to different ways of seeing reality. But I hope that offends you. We're not, we're not here to change the world. That's not what church is about. That's not what Jesus is about. Okay? Because the problem with that is that what are you changing the world into? How are you changing that world? You're changing it with you, into your perception of what is good, Right? So basically, you're just recreating the world in your own vision. No matter how altruistic or Jesus-centred you think that vision is, 
you'll always be trying to manoeuvre the world, to coerce the world, to conform the world to your vision of Jesus. And there's massive problems with that. Who has a 100% vision of Jesus that is infallible? So when we're talking about changing the world, and we talk about um, love and kindness and peace and justice and mercy, who has, who owns the bottom line on that? None of us. So in our changing of the world, and you come up against another well-meaning Christian, perhaps, who's also out to change the world, but you have a different view on something like atonement theory or something like that. Who wins in that, in that situation? Who gets to change the world in that situation? So what we end up with is just a million different ways of changing the world into like a better place. We want to make this world a better place. Um, so we're just making a superlative version of the world that we currently have. right? Um, and I want to suggest to you that Jesus and the Gospels are not about us changing the world. But the world has already been changed. And all we are to do is witness to the changed world that is already in existence. And first of all, I want to suggest to you that that is a better way of seeing things. Because, like I said, if we're out to change the world, I might think that the best way to change the world, or the way the world should be, is to vote Labour or to vote Conservative, or to back Remain, or to back Leave. And you can already see the problem with that. And so, say for example, you guys vote uh, Labour, and you vote Remain, but I'm a well-meaning Christian, and I vote Tory, and I vote Leave. Then to change the world is for me to get you on board with my agenda. As well-meaning as I could be. Uh, So I could invite you over to dinner and just talk to you gently about it in a really nice way and try and convince you, which is a light way of saying, coerce you to agree with me. And so we can already see the way that that works. That's why in the States, for example, you have some Christians saying that Donald Trump is... um, like, you know, Jesus reincarnated or something. He's the greatest thing since sliced bread. He's going to make America a Christian nation again. Um, That means that we can have all the guns we want, we can exclude all the foreigners we want, because Donald Trump is a Christian president. And some people will say, yeah, 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 that's, that's true. We're making the world a better place. We're making it a more Christian place. But some people, other Christians, well-meaning Christians with, with, with big hearts and, and real good intentions, will say, no, that's terrible. That's a terrible idea. It's a rubbish president. Look at all these other things that he's doing. But the problem is, is that changing the world like this or, or submitting ourselves into that is actually just playing the world's game. And it's just the flip side of the same coin. Because you're still playing in the politics, you're still playing with wealth, you're still playing with power, you're playing with all the world's tools, all the world's ways of being, trying to form a Christian world. But I want to say to you that Jesus dealt with these same problems, these same issues. (coughs) That 
Everybody's trying to change the world, but the world has already been changed and all we have to do is be good witnesses to the changed world. Yeah. Good signposts to the world that has already changed. <clears throat> so if you want to turn with me to Mark 3. I've just been reading um, through the Gospel of Matthew with a, with a commentary. And then when I started thinking about this, it was just like amazing how it all came about. The reason why I'm using Mark, by the way, is just because it has a better version of the, the same story. So Mark 3, 26. Um, is that right? Oh no, verse 20. So Mark 3. Uh, then Jesus entered the house again and the crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him. For they said, he is out of his mind. Jesus' uh, mum and dad and brothers were just trying to like, basically silence him because they thought he was out of his mind. He's just been uh, healing people and doing all this good stuff, but they thought he was out of his mind. Um, and then the teachers of the law, who came down from Jerusalem, said, He's possessed by the devil, by the prince of demons. He is driving out demons. Uh, so Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. He cannot. If Satan opposes himself, he is divided and he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up, and then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will, will never be forgiven. They are guilty of eternal sin. Jesus uh, going lightly there. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. Uh, then Jesus' mother and brother arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they took hold of him. Your mother and your brother are outside looking for you. And Jesus said, Who are my mother and my brothers? He asked. And then he looked at those seated in a circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister. And so, I'm not really going to exegete the text at all, uh, but I just want to bring uh, to mind, so, Jesus had a certain way of talking about the world, of seeing reality. And the problem is, is that everybody he encountered had a different way of seeing that reality. So, first of all, Jesus' mum and his brothers, they think he's out of his mind. Jesus is trying to uh, do this thing, and, and what, what, we don't need him to do it that way. This seems crazy, Jesus. What are you doing? You, you, you're like, just one of our brothers. You're just my son. What, are you, what on earth are you doing? Because their view of reality was in conflict with his view of reality. And Jesus is so firm on this that it almost seems like he's disowning them because they're trying to stop him. Who are, who are my mum and my brothers? The people I have relationship with, the people I'm in familiar relationship with, are the people that are going to try and see reality this way. There's a conflict. There's seeing reality this way and it's mutually exclusive to this way of seeing. And it seems harsh because it's his mum and his brothers, but they didn't see reality the same way. They wanted him to toe the line. They just wanted him to be a carpenter, get on with life, just be a really good citizen. You know, don't hurt other people, do a bit of good, be kind, and just get on with the way things are. But no, he was, he was upending the status quo. Okay, so the people that we love to hate, the, the Pharisees, the teachers of the law, they come along in this episode. And you see, they were out to change the world. If everybody can just be pure, if we could all just be good Jews, then God will come and smash the teeth in of the Romans, and we'll be free, and we'll have this um, utopian vision of Israel expanding, and all of the nations of the world coming, coming to learn about Yahweh. Which actually is probably 
using a different language is actually the evangelical Protestant version of Christianity. If we just be really pure Christians, if we just get on our knees and pray and confess our sins, then God will come and heal our nation, we'll have revival. And then everybody will be forced to become Christians. If we just have a Christian president, and he can make everybody become Christians. If we just evangelise, you know, with enough compulsion, with enough vigour, with enough smart arguments about the way the world is, then everybody will become Christians. If we just coerce enough people, if we just dominate them in, with our intellect, if we just have really smart arguments, then we will have this, this world changed into a Christian world. And Jesus is saying, no, that's not the way the world changes. That's not how to see reality. He's just saying, that's all the kingdoms of this world. That's all of Satan. And Satan isn't a bad guy that's red with horns. Satan is the, the opposition. It's never, just, it's never a, a, a name for somebody, for an entity. Satan is always the Satan, Hasatan, the, op, the opposer, the one who opposes the will of God. So when, you know, when we're talking about the Antichrist or anything like that, we're not talking about somebody that's really, really bad. We're just talking about somebody that opposes Jesus. And so, with that in mind... Let's turn to Matthew 16. So I love, I love Matthew 16 for so many different reasons, but this, this is just an absolute smackdown from Jesus. Um, so they have, the, they have this bit where they go up to Caesarea Philippi and then Jesus asks the disciples, you know, who, who do you say I am? And then the disciples, thinking it's a trick question, you know, hesitantly ask, oh, well, you could be Elijah, you know, you could be Dave, you could be Bob, um, you could be Jeremiah, you know. Who's really calling cool the Old Testament? Oh, yeah, you could be Elijah. He's really cool. Um, and, then, and then Simon Peter says, you know, you are the Christ, you are the Messiah, um, which is a really, really loaded term that we haven't got time to go into. So Jesus, get, uh, Pete gets this right. Jesus is like, yeah, 10 points for Pia, bonus disciple points. You get to sit next to me tonight around the campfire. And Pia's really made up. And then from that time on, so from verse 21, from that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples, he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders and the chief of priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed. And on the third day, he'll be raised to life. So Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this will never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And again, this is really harsh. This is kind of even more harsh than denying his own family. Peter, you are the enemy. You are the opposition to me. Get behind me. Shut up. Because what happens is, is Peter's recognised... You are the Messiah. You are the one who has been prophesied. You are the one we are waiting for. You are the king in the line of David. Uh, and then Jesus goes on to explain how this kingdom is going to happen. And Jesus' way of explaining it is, is that I need to die. I need to suffer at the hands of the powerful. I need to be made um, weak. I need to be, like, I will be shamed and humiliated uh, by all the wealthy, powerful elites. But that's the way I win. Because on the third day, I'll rise again. 
And Peter, who is the, the head of PR and marketing department for, for Jesus Ministries International, <laughs> says, Jesus, this is a terrible idea. You know what would be great? How about we got loads of soldiers? The dying thing? Not good. That, that's, that, I can get on board with going to Jerusalem, you know, because that's where things happen. That's where movers and shakers work. The dying thing? That, that's not cool. Maybe we need a show of power. Maybe we need a really smart marketing campaign about how you are the Messiah and how you are related somehow to David. But Jesus says, no, that's not the way the kingdom comes. That's the way other people's kingdoms come. My kingdom comes by giving my life, by self-sacrifice, by allowing the powers of this world to do their worst and humiliate me and I will rise again. I will take it all on and I will rise again. That's the way my kingdom comes. It doesn't come like any other kingdom. And then one final one, then Matthew 11. Uh, you notice how like, Jesus isn't rebuking his enemies particularly. He's rebuking his family, you know, his, um, his main protege, Peter. And now it's John the Baptist. Um, so from the start of chapter 11... When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we expect somebody else? And Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you see and hear. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is being proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anybody who does not stumble on account of me. So even John... It's like, I'm not, I'm not getting it, Jesus. This surely isn't the way God's kingdom comes in. I know that I've been the forerunner and I've been the one saying that, you know, everybody, you should listen to Jesus. But Jesus, it doesn't quite look like how it should look. Because you're not overthrowing anything. You're not, you're not, you're not rebuking the Pharisees enough. You're not telling them that their religion is false. You seem just to be giving freebies away. You, you seem to be giving the freebies of the kingdom away to everybody without telling them to do stuff. You're not, you're not telling them to change their lives. You just seem to be healing them and, and leaving it at that. You're not coercing them to think in a certain way, Jesus. You're just, you're just giving things away. So are you actually the one? Do you get what you're supposed to be doing, Jesus? And Jesus is saying, this is the way the kingdom comes. I give of myself. I just give myself. That's the way we have to live. <clears throat> See, the thing is, John the Baptist, the teachers of the law, Peter, Jesus' family all thought the world would be changed in a certain way. Yeah. How are we going to overthrow the Romans? How are we going to uh, reform our religion? Well, obviously, if we're going to overthrow the Romans, we're just going to get a bigger, better, badder army and kick them out. That's how this works, right? So with their immense power and their immense violence, we just use more immense power and more immense violence to get rid of them. Jesus, did you not get that memo? Or how are we going to reform the temple because it's overrun with these wealthy aristocrats? Uh, well, we come and convict them of their sin. We tell them. We do, um, we do debates around certain theological points uh, to convince them that they're wrong. But Jesus, you just seem to be going around healing people. You seem to be doing something completely different. thing is this is that Jesus is showing us the father 
the way the world has changed in Jesus is that he demonstrated the Father. He just pointed to the Father. He loved people, not because it was effective evangelism. He healed people, not because that was the way to grow his ministry, to get a stage, to get a following, so he could mobilise all these people to go do something. He didn't reach out to Gentiles or the Roman centurion because it was a way that he could exert influence and change people's minds. It isn't an effective strategy. Loving enemies isn't a smart thing to do. Being vulnerable to those that hate you isn't the way to get ahead in this world. These are not effective means of doing humanity the way we learn humanity. That is not a quick way to power or influence or wealth. Christianity isn't effective or successful at all. Christianity is about being like Jesus. It doesn't matter if it's effective. To love my enemy might get me killed. But I don't do it because I think I might win him to the cause or coerce them somehow or make them feel super guilty until they believe how I believe. I love my enemy because that's what Jesus does. My only call is to be a good witness to that. And the best way I can be a good witness is to try and emulate that, to try and be like that. Because I've been given the same power to do that. I've been given the power to be like Jesus. I've not been given the power to make a platform for myself. To be successful in the world's terms. To create a following. My only power is to be a good witness to Jesus Christ. And Jesus' way of doing things, Jesus' way of being, is exactly opposite to the way the world does things. Jesus' way to get to the top is to die. Jesus uses the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, the weak things to shame the strong. When we fix our eyes upon Jesus, it means that we're not looking at all the ways the world system is. If I fix my eyes upon Jesus, it's because I want to be like him. There's a verse that says, as we behold him, we become like him. That is winning. That is success. That is prosperity. That is influence. That is power, to just be like him. All I am is a signpost to that. It doesn't matter if I have a, a million dollar ministry and sell books by the bushel load. Bushel? It's a really archaic term. <laughs> books and apples. Um, and I can influence millions. And I could be a great preacher. And I could be very convincing. But that's not what I'm supposed to do. All I'm supposed to do is be like Jesus. I'm not here to change the world. I'm here to say, Jesus has changed the world. And I'm here to be a good witness to that. So, the conclusion is, don't go and change the world. Do not ever go to change the world. This is my exhortation to you. Just go and be good witnesses to the world that has already changed in Christ Jesus. If anybody is in Christ Jesus, behold a new creation. Go look at Jesus. Gaze upon Jesus. Be loved by Jesus. Experience Jesus. Perceive Jesus. Understand all of the love that he has for you. That even while we were far off, he came looking for you. Even while we were his enemies, he died for us. Behold, there was a lamb slain from the foundation of the world. Before you could do any single thing, before you were even a twinkle in your mother and father's eyes, Jesus has already said, I love you. I will give my life for you. Because that's what Jesus does. And all we have to do is be witnesses to that. Go and be loved. Go and 
be the one who somebody has patience upon, who has somebody has patience with. Go and receive kindness and then do the same because that's what Jesus is like. Receive his love, receive his patience, receive his kindness, receive his long-suffering because I know how annoying I am and how people around me need to be long-suffering. And I receive that, that I may be long-suffering. Not because that's an effective way of changing the world, but because that is a way to be a good witness to the one who is long-suffering with me. Look at Jesus. Look away from other things. See his love, his kindness, his patience. Not because they're great ways to be a great person or to achieve success in your jobs or to get a promotion or to get a bigger pay packet or to be healed or to be effective because that's what Jesus is like and that's all we're called to. So to finish off, let's go to uh, 1 John. 1 John 4 from verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. This is how God showed his love amongst us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we love God, but that he has loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. So go, be loved on. Because that's what God does to you. And then go point to that love by loving other people. Amen.